Hello, my fellow music lovers. I'm Alison Hagendorf, and welcome to the show. This is where we celebrate the universal love of music and the rock and roll spirit that lives in each of us. My guest today is alternative rock god, the Smashing Pumpkins frontman and friend of mine, Billy Corgan. I have always been a fan of Billy's and the Smashing Pumpkins for decades, and it is always so special for me anytime we hang out. But to have such an in-depth sit-down and heart-to-heart is truly wonderful. We talk all about the new album, Autumn, the magic that keeps the Smashing Pumpkins together and so prolific after all these years, the importance of celebrating younger superstars like Willow and Youngblood, the impact of Kurt Cobain's death, and how becoming a father is his proudest legacy. And stay tuned after the interview for my sound advice. New music you need to know. It all starts now. I am so happy you're here. Thank you. This is a gift for me. Thank you. What's weird to me is, you know, I obviously I watch your show and and I wondered where, and we're in the middle of the desert. This is wild. How do you get yes, all the way out we here? We are. I know it's true. It's like you need like a Couple Mars, a Mars rover. Yeah, yeah, this is wild. <laughs> exactly. I had to go through like these big gates that said AH with like they're like, but they like in flames. And yeah, but it was worth it. I'm with here you. We are. Of course, it's worth. I mean, it's worth it. Oh, thank you. I haven't seen you since I had the honor of introducing you during your That's, handprint ceremony. And you ceremony. were with child. I was. I was very pregnant, and it was very hot that day. It was. And I remember thinking. I don't know if this is right. She's out there sweating <laughs> with the kid and the uh, kid to be, obviously. Yes. And uh, but thank you for that. We were so happy to share that moment with you. Um, you know that you and Kiss are the only two bands who received that honor. Yeah. And do you mind a little story? I, are you kidding? Okay. Bring on all the stories. Okay. So you know, we 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 heard about it, and they're doing this thing, and I thought I thought it was going to be like a thing, like you do the ceremony. But they don't put it in the ground. They just kind of give it to you. Like, right. we're honoring you with this process, but you don't get to hang here. And then somebody said to me when I was there that day with you, like, no, it's real. And I'm like, what do you mean it's real? Like down there with Carol Lombard and <laughs> Clark Gable? Because yes. I'm a huge Hollywood, right. particularly 30s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a lot of my heroes are down in that. So I was like, then I got really freaked out. And then Chloe, my partner, who you know. Chloe got mad at me because her father wanted to come. And I said, oh, he shouldn't come out from New York for this. It's Aww. a cool thing, but it's not that big a deal. And then I was like, oh, my God, it's really a big deal. You didn't deal. realize you were literally going to be putting your hand no, no, in front no, of everyone. Okay. Sorry to repeat. I, I thought you would do the ceremony. You get the press thing yeah. and answer a couple questions, whatever. But then I thought they weren't actually going to put it in the ground. Yeah. It's not like, here's your ceremonial yes. handprint thing. Thanks. And then next week, it's, I don't know, Fallout Boy. You know right. what I mean? Like, it's all good. You know what I mean? <laughs> Speaking of Chicago. Right. Yes. I didn't know it was like, no, you're going to be in there with Kiss and Carol Lombard and yeah. Joan Crawford and, you know, William Powell. And I was like, then I got really freaked yeah, out. Yeah, that was really special. What a huge compliment. It really was. So I take some ownership of your child now because <laughs> that day changed you. It did. And also, there's another moment when I was pregnant with Cole, my other son. I had come to see you on tour, and as you finished your set, I was standing on the side of the stage, and literally, I was going to give you your space so you can like cool off and have some oh, water. I'm not that guy. You went straight over to me 
and like greeted my pregnant belly. And I was like, this unborn child has just been like knighted by Billy Corgan. Well, it's the goth, you know, (laughs) it's like there's a sort of a goth ray that we can send out. Um, it's, it's, it's a life of happiness, but you know, you know, you, it's like an indoctrination into the, this cult. It really was pretty special. And his name is Cole Hendricks. I know you're a big Hendricks fan. So yes. this whole like beautiful musical. I hate to, you know, I'm, I hate when people give away the end of the movie, but pretty soon he'll start listening like Sisters of Mercy. Oh yeah. And, um, you know, like, uh, Crime in the City Solution, yes. if you want to get real deep. Yes. And you'll be like, but mom's a rocker, you know, and be like, mom, this is my path. This is my journey. Um, you're going to have to respect that. You I know. know it's true. It's true. I try to introduce great. I do good parenting. He loves David Bowie. He was David good Bowie start. for Halloween already. Good so start. It's a strong start. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean, you. yeah, I mean, what, but was he like the thin white Duke? Was he? Well, Did let's you go, dance. You, let's dance is his favorite. Oh, song. Okay, so right. yeah, yeah. I, I have actually, to show you the picture. I actually of had an in-depth conversation once with David about the making of that record. Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. What was that like for you? Because I know that David, of course, is one of your biggest idols. I mean, are you kidding? It was interesting because David. This is my quick uh, psychological sketch. David was a very shy person, mm-hmm. I think, and he was used to being David Bowie. Mm-hmm. Duh. So, but sometimes people like that, there's the sort of like, they can put the flash bo- uh, the flashlight on like, hey, great, David Bowie. But the real person's still kind of back in there. Once you got past, hey, it's David Bowie. Yeah. And I was around him enough times, you realize the real David Bowie was kind of shy mm-hmm. and a bit bookish and not, I'm not saying different, just lights on, maybe lights not as bright. Yeah. Because he was super charismatic. Are you kidding? When he'd hit that smile and- Going to David Bowie mode? Yeah. Hello. It's yes. like, it's like uh, I get to play rock star. There's like a real star. And by the way, not just a rock star, like a star, a star. like like a megawatt, yes. 80,000 right. people in a stadium. That's a different, that's a different class of dude or star. Um, I don't want to gender it because obviously there's huge uh, uh, female stars as well. Um, so it was cool to get to know him as a person and, um, yeah. And I, I I haven't given the details of this, but I know you well enough. I'll tell, at least give you this teaser. Yeah. Um, it happens to me occasionally that after people pass and go to the other side, they visit me in my dreams. And my dreams when that happens are totally different than, say, a normal dream. It's hard to explain, but I'm like, where am I? It's almost like being in a totally different reality. Everything has substance, like, and everything is highly designed. And so... About a month after David passed, he came and visited me in one of those dreams, and I was with him for maybe ten minutes in the dream. Wow! And um, it was it was wild. I'll tell the story some point, probably in a book. But but it was cool because I felt like ah, oh, he's letting me me Aww. know he's okay. But it wasn't just like I'm okay. He wanted to show me stuff. Like it was super sci-fi, like David would. Yeah. So if that's a product of my imagination, which is quite vivid, I'll take it either way because. Yeah. It made me feel at peace. Mm-hmm. Um, so who knows? When you get into that stuff, there's no, no, there's no answer. But um, yeah, I, I, I love and I get a bit bitter about it. And, and this is just me being a, a, a fan and a friend. Um, you know, we were both signed to Virgin Records in the 90s. Uh, Nancy Berry, if you know Nancy at all, uh, was, was a big proponent of David. And she would tell me stories, you know, because corporate times in the 90s, you know big megalith corporation. 
And she would go in and just literally be like, okay, you know, David, David's putting on a new record. And the staff would be like filing their nails. And, like, <laughs> oh so, you know, and they would say stuff to her at, like, no one cares about David Bowie anymore. Like, why do we have to do this? It's your passion project. And like, wow. Like, and I would hear those stories while it was happening. And obviously the pumpkins were up yes. here, you know? And I don't mean that as any third sort of supremacy. I mean that just as like, we were having a good run. And I would hear those stories and I'd be like, oh my God. So I went out of my way to try to understand his politic at the time, to understand what was going on with the label at the time. I knew some inside baseball that obviously was very proprietary to the company. And um, where am I going with this? It just really pained me. Yeah, of course. Because, and of course, I would mention him in interviews. I would try to do what little I could do. And of course, I was lucky enough to play his 50th birthday party on his invitation, which was like one of the all-time honors of my life. Ugh. Robert Smith was there. And oh my God. Francis was there. And you know, Thurston from Sonic Youth. It was a really cool. And there's, there's a beautiful picture, if anybody's ever seen it, where they put everybody together. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, kind of took the group picture of the event which I cherish. But then for some reason, and you know, cause it was when, when you were on David, it was definitely David's show. Yeah. So it's not like I'm going to be like, I want to do it my way. Like I normally would be <laughs> anyway. So somebody, somebody's like, something's happening and I'm not really sure what's happening. So I'm, I don't know where to stand. And next thing I know, somebody pushes me and now I'm in a photo and it's me, Lou Reed, Robert Smith and wow. David. Cause somebody wanted that shot. Now that's the shot for me. Right. Are you kidding me? I mean, three of my heroes, knew them all a little bit personally, some more than others, but it's like that shot right there. I mean, you want a fanboy out. Like, are those the moments that you're like, okay, I made it? Like what is going through your mind in that moment? It's a combination of things because um, I'm a, and this goes back to what I'm telling you about, David. I'm a person who feels like if you enter this crazy world of music on the professional side, um, my father, you know, was a professional, but he just played gigs. Mm -hmm. But this side, the recording and all the media, if you come in and and let's say you're not even a Lou Reed fan, if you don't know who Lou Reed is and you don't respect the game, right? I'm sorry, you're a fucking asshole. Mm -hmm. You're a fucking asshole and I've met plenty. And I even hate it when I would do stuff like that, where I would think like, oh, I don't care about him or her. That's not my gimmick. Over time, I learned to appreciate, I think it was probably because of when the pop stars came in hard in the late 90s, early 2000s. It took me a while to understand like, if you're Christina Aguilera or, or Britney, the, the boy bands, that's something. Yeah. You don't have to like it, um, but you got to respect it. So that I had to evolve over that. So when you're standing there, back to your question, when you're standing there with three people that you truly have listened to, learned from, respect, and you're like, how am I in this shot? Um, now I've proven my mettle over time, but in that moment, you're like, I'm pretty lucky because this is some rare company and I know how rare it is. I don't need some jerk in Brooklyn who writes for some. Mm -hmm. website to tell me i know right that's my world i'm sort of having that moment right now sitting here with you because <laughs> you're that to me seriously well, thank Billy. you i'm serious thank you are you are one of my favorites artists in, and i'm not a musician 
I'm not an, a musician. You have you a know, musician's heart, though. You I see. have a musician's heart, and you have provided the soundtrack, and not just in the 90s. Yeah. I've been a fan the whole way. Yes, you have. And I was fortunate to see you earlier this week um, celebrating Autumn. The third act yeah. is finally out. Can you believe it? You have been working towards this for years, this rock opera, this 33-song body of work. Now that it's out, how do you feel? Well, um, you know, I've made a good career out of bitterness. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, I go back to a meeting. Uh, James had rejoined the band, uh, as some people would know. James and I didn't speak, much less have an email for 16 or so years. A lot of animosity there. So once we resolved all that, and that's held, like now we're five plus years into uh, a renaissance of the band. Mm -hmm. I go back to a meeting that we had when it was just the OG, right? Yeah. Me, Jimmy, and James. And here we are having a nice, you know, expensive meal. And I go, I got this idea. And da 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 And, then, <laughs> and they look at me like, what? Because in my mind, hey, man, the gang's back together. Right. Let's go hit the gas, thousand miles an hour, and they're like, "Uh, are you insane?" Right. Yes, but <laughs> but that's irrelevant. Yeah. No, but in a weird way, because I think what happened and things tend to work for a reason. I think if we made Autumn, then it wouldn't be the record that it is now, and I mean in terms of strength, mm -hmm. it would have had some different points. But like even the fact that I wrote a record about AI and transhumanism and robotics and you know i started writing that four years ago yeah. and now every day it's like ai this okay. ai this oh my god and then the other uh if you don't mind another quick story uh i was talking about AI with my partner chloe the other night and she's like and i said something about i said something negative she goes i'm gonna do chloe imitation what do you mean <laughs> i use ai every day now i'm like you do she goes i use it to write my business emails and uh, and I was she starts showing me all this, and I had no idea. Wow! So to her, Chloe using it. Chloe's not. Chloe has uh, uh, some dyslexia, ADD type stuff, as is common in her generation. Might have something to do with the internet. Mm -hmm. That's my point of view. Yeah. But point is, is for her to be able to ask something to do something, and it all comes out, and it sounds because she always says, "I can't do it like you do, where you can just talk." That's a skill that you have. I don't have that. So for me, this is a blessing because I'm a mama like you and I, I'm doing all this stuff. Yes, I don't have the hour to write the perfect email anymore. I just... Ba -ba -ba That's interesting. She uses that. Oh, yeah. She's all about it. Have you been seeing the AI covers that are happening? Well, they'll take like Kurt Cobain doing a Radiohead song. No, there was somebody did it. Kurt doing... Uh, a Today by the Pumpkins. Oh, somebody wow. sent that to me and I was like, I'm not going there. This is just... It's yeah, like how does that make you feel when you see that? I think Just, it's all, f I, I think that part's fun. Mm -hmm. I think the dark part is, and maybe there's a bit of sorrow in it. Maybe I'm projecting. If I was 15 years old now and I wrote my first two songs and everybody did what they did to me, which was like, sounds like Pink Floyd. Mm -hmm. You're like, oh, I'm 15. I'm scared. I'm trying. I have this feeling. Okay. And now I look over here when I'm not looking at porn or whatever else I'm, or AI porn, right? Oh, by the way, if I feed these three chords or this feeling I have into this thing, it's going to spit out a far more sophisticated version of what I'm capable of. And oh, by the way, I really like it. And now that I hear that, 
I changed this one thing and now I, and then I play for my friends like, oh, that's really good, bro. Sounds like Radiohead. Oh, good. Because I don't want to sing like Pink Floyd. I, I sound like Pink Floyd. I want to sound like Radiohead. That sounds more like what I'm going for. That kid's never going to learn how to write right. the way I did. And I'm not saying my version's better, but you learn a lot about yourself. That part makes me sad because why wouldn't that kid press that button if it's there? And you know, and what looks... Uh, streaming services are already using AI-generated music uh, for profitability, okay? There's going to be, and there have been in, for years in Japan, there are AI-generated artists where there's not even a real person and thousands of people go watch an anime character do songs. Um, it's over. I mean, that now we're going to have almost like a third cottage industry of AI-produced product. And the minute they start getting on the charts, it's over. Because you have to deal with a psychotic person like me versus like, <laughs> Hey Bob, uh, if you want to go to the what's what's the place on uh, the Ivy, you know? Yeah, you want to go to the Ivy for lunch? Uh, hold on, let me finish writing this AI song, you know. Or, or, or hold on, Billy Corgan line too. Oh God, you know. Well, one is the end product, and one is the artist with the journey. You know, they're two different things. One's like being handed a superhero power, and it's like you kind of get to skip all of the the grueling work and the. I'm sorry. They're just different things. I have a lot of faith in humanity, but I don't have that kind of faith. I just don't see them, those artists of the next generation or this current generation, going through all the paces that you need to go through, all the insecurity, all the rejection, right? And you interview artists all the time. Mm -hmm. What do they talk about? Oh, my God, my head is done in by 8,000 things. Right. And you're usually talking to the people that have been successful. Try talking to the people who haven't been successful, like my father. Right. They're damaged because they've been told. Sorry, you just don't get to join the fun party over here, you know. So I think it's going to be tough, and maybe it'll it'll be it'll be like one of those things like you almost have to like look for some special label or something. Like it'll tell you like Joe or Mary wrote this song. Well, that's why so many artists are not even doing bands because. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Because you have to deal with band dynamics. Isn't it much easier to do uh, music on your own, you know? But it's the band dynamics that makes the band. I mean, you, James, and Jimmy, think D- about... Does it? <laughs> <laughs> As Dar- Darcy Resky used to say, being in a band is like being married to three people you don't like. <laughs> right. It is. It's a complex... It's a very complex... Dynamic. And you've... You've had more access to it than most. You see those dynamics behind the scenes. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because all you need to know if anybody's listening is look at your own family. Right. Everybody loves Uncle Bob, but are you inviting him over for Thanksgiving? You got to think about that. Right. Because Uncle Bob likes to drink. And by the time you're cleaning up the turkey, here comes Uncle Bob. And it's the good with the bad. That's a band. What do you think it is that's so special about you, Jimmy and James? I mean, obviously, there's something very magical there after decades. And now you're putting out some of your greatest work together and biggest tours. Yeah. You know, um, Rick Rubin said when James came back to the band and we did that first thing with Rick, he said, um, James softens your metal. 
meaning I'm more of a riffer and James has a way of kind of creating a psychedelia over the top. As soon as James came back, it was like, oh yeah, there's that thing, yeah. that weird thing that happens. It's the way we play together. Where did that start? In the bedroom that my dad used to deal drugs out of. James and I learn how to play this particular way together and that's the way we both play. So when he's standing there, we automatically go into that thing. Jimmy, I mean, are you kidding me? Jimmy came in, you know, on a on a early summer's day, stonewashed jeans, pink t-shirt, mullet haircut, yellow <laughs> drum kit, driving a 280Z. And the three goths in us looked and thought, oh my God, what is this? Here's the real skinny on Jimmy. Jimmy uh, went to school and was like doing a, a college marching band. So he had to learn all the crazy, you know, blah, 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 all that. Then I think either probably before that, he played in a famous uh, polka band. That's incredible. And there is a clip, somebody has it, of Jimmy at like 15 playing boom, ba, boom, ba, on t- I like did not lo- know this. Local TV with like a like a barbershop <laughs> quartet. Boom, ba, boom, ba, with, but he's still got the mullet. <laughs> and what's amazing. amazing about Jimmy is he's at 15, he looks, he still looks, he still looks the same exactly age at 15. Same, yeah. Somehow he looks like he's still 40. <laughs> yeah. Like now he's now he's now he's going towards 16. He still looks like he's 40. Somehow he's always yeah. look 40. It's the median, yeah. Um, but um yeah, so when I met Jimmy, he was playing in a in a, like a basically a wedding band. I I, I was uh, actually walking. He, he invited me to some street fair as we have in Chicago, and it was a beautiful day. And I was walking with my future ex wife, and uh, and we walked up, and the band was playing "Green Eyed Lady." If you remember that oh, song, oh wow, yeah, Green Eyed Lady, Fashion Lady, yeah. And all I hear was boom, jump, uh, boom, and I was like, wow, that guy can play. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That was the first moment. Like, he could play the drums. A lot of people can play the drums. A lot of people can play the guitar. I heard that thing that sells a lot of records eventually. Mm-hmm. It sounded like a recording, but live. And I was like, how does he do that? Because I never heard that from a drummer that I knew. Right. It was always some guy in Rush. So as soon as we figured out, and it started with like, oh, you like Rush? Yeah. I'm like, it's like litmus test for musicians. Yeah, of course. Like, can you play the? You know, can you play the middle section in Tom Sawyer? And Jimmy's like, he plays it while he's looking at the newspaper. He had he had integrated Ian Pace, John Bonham. At that point, he was what 23, 24? He had them all down, all of them. That's incredible. Billy caught all the best, like the drummers, drummers, Bozio, all of them. He could do all that stuff. It was like, who are you? Because Jimmy was from Joliet, and he talked like he was from Joliet. You know, not somebody you associate as like with a deeper aesthetic. Right. And we were all snobby, you know? So we had that. And I was like, oh, my God. I found like the needle in a million haystacks. Like, who is this guy? And the tension point was the other two, unnamed, <laughs> wanted him gone. Because he didn't look the part. That mullet. And didn't sound the part. It was a different type of personality. He wasn't an old guy. He'd mm-hmm. never heard Bauhaus. He'd never heard The Cure. He didn't know he had, The Cure. He didn't know any of it. If you'd say, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, Love and Rockets, he'd be like, what? Huh? Right. He knew more like, so we would talk about Gene Krupa or some, we had tried to find some common language. Yes. So I knew enough about like Benny Goodman to say, that Krupa beat. So you think of Jimmy's Tom. Dun, dun, ka, 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 ka. 
He's doing Gene Krupa. That's really cool, though. So that we had that. So like, you had that. Connection. Oh, you can do that because we didn't. We didn't want to, especially because we were kind of gothy. That we didn't like. I didn't want him to sound like, like yeah, like play like Neil Peart on the goth song, right? But Gene Krupa on the goth song. Okay, now you're kind of in the Cure territory. Yes, that's acceptable. Okay, but now we're he- like we're a heavier Cure. Now you're like okay, and then you I hear can digest then that. You hear Stephen Perkins. And you yeah. say, oh, that works. I just had a conversation with Stephen Perkins in Australia that day. Right now, by the way, uh, the band is out with Josh Klinghoffer playing yes. guitar. They are killing it. It's They're probably incredible. the best I've heard Jane sound in a long time. Yes. That's no slight on Dave because Dave Navarro, longtime friend, love Dave. But Dave's not there right now. Jane's is on fire right now. So, But I was talking about Stephen about the, you know, those beautiful Jane's arrangements where they just kind of whine and they're like dreamy drug trips. And I said, yeah, we stole that from you. I mean, like we were like, we'll take that too. So imagine that and the cure and the drumming. And it's all of a sudden it's like this whole world opens up, but it's all because of Jimmy. Oh, that's Jimmy really takes cool. you there. Cause if you dream it, you know, it's like, Hey, let's play a super aggressive ministry style beat that Al Jorgensen would program in a drum machine. Right. And Jimmy's like, okay. He was okay. like the secret weapon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's uh, let's do ELO seventy four, uh, 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 strange magic. Okay, it, it was like it was like you couldn't stump him. Remember that game on Johnny Carson or like stump the guy? Oh yes, of course. You couldn't yeah, stump you couldn't the drummer. Stump him. You couldn't stump he was the drummer. So versatile. Oh my god! Now it's easy to say he's one of the greatest rock drummers of all time, and you know. I think he's been modern drummer of the year four times. Mm-hmm. I mean, like real accomplishments. Yeah. And drum people know what I'm talking about. Like you're you're rated up there with the real greats. Right. At this point, I'm in a a rehearsal space, which is also a place that the guy who was a friend of my dad's was selling drugs and illegal Chicago Bears merchandise out the back door. That's our rehearsal space. And he's just some guy with a mullet. <laughs> and the other two band members are trying to get rid of him. And I'm like, I don't think we're going to find this again yes. in Chicago, much less L.A. Like, I knew enough. And my father, the last part of the story, my father saw us play one of the early gigs, and he said, he kind of pulled me aside and said, I don't care what you do with the other two. Don't lose the fucking drummer. Wow. Whatever you do, do not lose the drummer. That was Basically, probably the best advice that he gave you. That was my father's way of saying, if you're going to get anywhere in this life, you better hang out to that guy by his ankles. Wow. And I did. Because it wasn't easy because Jimmy had his issues yes. and would disappear. And where's Jimmy? That became that. Mm-hmm. There was that game. And we'd call Jimmy's mom at home. Do you know where Jimmy is? I haven't seen him for two weeks. And you know, he's standing right there. Oh, it's like, oh, I'm going to kill you. Somehow we navigated all that. So when you put it all back together, here we are. Great. Let's jump back into the Prague. And they look at me like, no, maybe not. <laughs> so here's Adam four or five years later. Because I was stubborn enough to say, I'm doing it with or without you. And right. Like, okay. But so you have to give them credit. They were open to it. And now it's 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 born and it's out. And it's pretty special. And I think it's this album, which is your 12th album, which is so wild to think about. It really is one of maybe your most diverse albums. Of course, mm. we have the storytelling aspect of it. But even sonically, I know it's more guitar driven, you know, than Sear, but like you'll have like Harmageddon, which is like beautiful metal into Fireflies, which, by the way, is now one of my new favorite songs. 
And then you have like Intergalactic, which of course, like this cool drum journey, you know, you get to- Definitely like some ministry in there at the yes, end. Yes, yeah. totally. But um, I'm loving this body of work. And I think the band has always been unique because you see all those influences. I mean, the band, you had classic rock, then you had like new wave, you had so many different sides yeah. of it. And I think that Autumn really does show all the different sides. Also like a very, uh, ex like an experimental aspect to it too. Yeah. I think uh, the contrivance of the story, because the character has to look back at some point and deal with what's happened to him and then obviously what's happening in the future, because that's sort of where the story goes. It allowed me this weird moment for the first time in my life to say, it's okay to live in the past, the present, and the future at the same time. Where every, every album before, I always felt like I had to make a choice. Mm -hmm. Because that's just the way the music business tends to work. Like, well, what are you saying? Um, so it was like, okay, it's okay to have one song sound like Siamese Dream and it has an okay have a song that doesn't sound like any album you've made and another song to sound like Oceania, another song to sound like Adore. It's okay. As long as the story kind of holds it all together, the music will hold together. And over time, then that became its own kind of thing, like a weird movie that if you cut it just right, the disparity between the things kind of seems to be okay. It balances out. But it took, it took time. I mean, I must have... I work sequentially every time. So imagine I would start the first song, work on that, go to the next one, and then start over. So by the time I would get back to the first one, it had been like six weeks. So wow. I was like, how does this song go? And start over. So every time I went through the cycle, it would get shorter. So now it's now it's three weeks. Now it's yeah. two weeks. Um, and over time, it just kind of took on its own wave. Um, it was wild. And even now I listen to it and I obviously I hear songs by promoting it. And I'm like, I don't really even know what's happening there. I mean, I remember right. making it, but I couldn't tell you how I got there because it's so much journey. It'd, it'd be like, have you ever had that where you like went on a vacation and, you, and somebody said, how was your vacation? Oh, we did this and we did this and this. And somebody's like, well, what's this picture? Oh yeah, we went to that right. zoo too. That's how I feel. It's like, oh, that's what the day we went to the zoo too. Like, oh yeah, that too. So I think when you hear that diversity, that's part of it. I would got so lost in it that I would even forget where I was on the timeline. Wow. And the cool thing about it, too, is that you've had so much success at radio. Hello. I mean, Beguiled, first of all, made such a yeah. splash. And then now you have simultaneously Spellbinding and Empires at Amazing. different formats. Both were number one most added. I mean, how does that feel? That Amazing. Must, yeah. Well, I'll try to be quick because it's a really, really long story. You know, uh, from 1992, but maybe one, to 2000, the Smashing Pumpkins were continually on the radio. I had my wars with radio programmers. But when all was said and done, I think it might have been Cashbox, it was one of those industry mags, wrote and said, the Pumpkins were the number one most played band in the alt format in the, in the 90s. Wow. And as I always like to say, because I think it's important to point out, if Kurt had stuck around, we might have lost that fight. But it is what it is. So we literally got played the most of any alt band in the 90s. We won that. That's unbelievable. War mm -hmm. race. So you think, right, going into the 2000s, me, uh, we broke up the band. I'm in Zwan or whatever solo. You think, ah, you know, I know all these people and pick your point on the timeline. Tan in a record. Doesn't sound like the Pumpkins. Okay, next album. Mm, sounds a little too much like the old Pumpkins. Okay, hand in another <laughs> oh my record. God. Uh, it's 
we're kind of, it's a good song. Don't get me wrong. It's a great single. It just doesn't really work with our format right now. We're playing a lot of people in their basement with laptops and funny right. mustaches and a lot of reverb. So this thing you're doing right now, it doesn't really fit in. Next album. So for some reason, after this, since we brought the band back, like I, like I, I go back to Zwan, obviously. So you're talking about a 20 plus year period where there was some success, but it never felt like, okay, you're back in the game. So imagine I had 10 years of you're in the game. You're always in the conversation. You're at the top of the game. God bless you. And then you had, what, 20 years where it was like always this thing where you felt like you were like tapping on the glass and depending on who was standing there, you were not welcome. Oh, no, you're welcome when we need something from you. And mm. then now we don't need you. And it was like, and then you start thinking, okay, I got to get out of here. Yes. Um, I even made a record, um, not to belabor the point, uh, Oceania, uh, I was the only original member in the band. Jeff was in the band, who's obviously still in the Pumpkins. I think the record came out 2011, 2012. I went in and I said, Everybody around me, including the management at the time, I said, I'm just going to make a great album and I'm not even going to think about the radio at all. I need to just make a great album. For yourself. For myself. Everybody around me agreed, oh, this is a really strong record. And even Pumpkins fans who had a problem with the fact that I was the only original member at the time now really liked the record for some reason. Great. Hand in the record. Here it comes. I, I'm in a perfect place. I don't need to read record reviews. I'm good. I've made a good album. I feel good about myself. I've had a lot of mental health issues. I didn't kill myself that year, so everything's just fine. Here comes the manager. Hey, there's some interest from radio. Okay, but I didn't make any singles. Well, they really like this one song, which at the time was called The Celestials. Okay, but if I'd made it as a single, I wouldn't have made it this way. Right. Well, that that's funny you mentioned that because it did come up. They think the intro, <laughs> they think the intro's too long. Here it comes. <laughs> and to quote Chicago, no shit, Sherlock. Right. Because I would have fixed that in the making if I was thinking of it as a single, but I didn't think of it as a single, so I didn't make it that way because I just made it the way I fucking wanted it. Right. So now I'm now I'm back in the fucking thing of like a strength is a weakness. And that's the music business in a nutshell. A weakness is a strength and a strength and is weakness and up is down. And, you know, someday they want you and someday they, and you're like, you just can't follow. This is why people go insane. Yes. And I'm actually in a, me a mentally healthy, stable place. It's like, I'm cool. If nobody wants to listen, I'm good. I'm just a happy guy over mm -hmm. here, as happy as I can be. And here we are back in the thing. Yeah. And I, I, they literally begged me to release it as a single. Begged me. And I said, no, no. Okay. Just try the one station. Okay. And then here you go. Well, you know, it's not testing well. And you're like, no shit. Uh, because brutal. it's not one of those it's songs. It's brutal. Yeah. That's it's a good song. Brutal. It's a good song. So then you then now every time I play the song, I don't hear the song in the lyric. I hear the guy telling me the intro's too long. You know what I mean? Do you do that? Is that is that your personality? That instead of hearing all the wonderful things, you kind of like zero in on the critiques or the I negative? I did, not so much anymore. Okay. I had to, um, I was telling a friend yesterday, um, somebody was really complimenting me about something. And they said, did you, they were at a dinner or something and somebody said something really nice, genuinely nice. They said, did you hear that thing that person said? And I go, yeah, I heard it. And then they went on about it and I said, so stop. 
I said, I heard it, but it didn't go in. And they said, why is that? And I said, because I had to learn years ago that a compliment is the same as a piece of criticism. In essence, the pact I made with myself is if I'm not going to listen to criticism, I can't listen to compliment. Mm -hmm. I can't, I can't like go, I don't want to hear what you have to say. Don't know. You don't bother me. Oh, you love me? Oh, tell me more. Yeah, tell me more. Because it's its its own form of addiction, right? You got to. So I had to just learn to trust myself. And even that was a process, but now I'm in a good place. So, you know, hence you had all these people around me at the time and you know, some of them, bad idea. Don't do 33 songs, career suicide. Yeah. I've heard that one before. Yeah. Um, Don't do it. Don't do it. Bad, 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 bad. Or uh, there's some really good singles on this record. Does it have to be 33 songs? Why don't we? I'm like, it's a fucking rock opera. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it's a kind of a joke. It's the Smashing Pumpkins. Have fun. If you want to work singles, great, but it's 33 songs. Can we do this other thing and the thing? And like, It's brutal. It's brutal. That's the business. But you've gotten good about tuning it out. That's like a, well, a skill you had to work I'm gonna on. I'm going to say this to you as a true earth mama. Um, it's family. Mm-hmm. It's family. Nothing makes me happier in this world that my kids don't give a shit who I am in the world. Ah, yeah. I mean that from the bottom mm-hmm. of my heart if I have one left. When my kids just look at me and say, Dad, where's the Nintendo Switch? <laughs> Tell you a quick story. <laughs> do they listen to your music at all or no? They do. They do, okay. Yeah, they love, uh, they love Bullet with Butterfly Wings. They love Everlasting Gaze because they Aww. love the video because Dad's all weird. Oh, that's cool. And they yeah. love We Only Come Out at Night. Oh, I love it. They sit in the back and sing the song. Right. And I'm like, this is surreal because they have the voice, even though it's the little version of the voice, but there's the Corgan. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that you've been doing that live, by the way. That makes me very happy. But that's how they got into the song. They heard me do it live. And they, you know, because they're kids, seven and four, they connected with the lyric. We only only come come out out at night. night. It makes sense to them in sort of a basic way, right? They could sing along with it easily. I'll tell you another quick story. So, uh, we were playing the uh, United Center of Chicago, sold out show, you know, 14,000 people, beautiful night. Everything's great. At some point uh, during the show, Chloe walked out with the kids and they sat like in front of the barrier. So, you know, here's the crowd, the barrier, barricade, and then they're, they're, they're sitting there. And I can see my son and he's watching me. He's like this. And he's got a zero track, <laughs> shirt, track suit on. By the way. I had one custom made in red. He's only got the only one in the world. So he's got his little zero tracks. He's got his little, you know, you know, the, 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 the gun, the gun range, you know, yeah, these of ones. Of course, yeah. And he's like this. <laughs> and I saw him afterwards and I said, um, did you, did you not enjoy the show? And he said, no, I like the show. I said, are you not proud of daddy? What happened? He says, oh no, I'm really proud of you. I said, but you made this face. I said, what was going on? I said, it makes me nervous to have all those people staring at you. Oh, that's really beautiful yeah. and sweet. Yeah. Wow. And so my way of translating it, it could be wrong, but my way of translating is, is he's not sure how he fits into that equation because yeah. that's what he should be worried about, right? Yeah. Do I lose dad somehow with all these people? And I'm like, no, no, you're number one. Yeah. And she's number one, two. Yeah. Not no one, two. They're one, one and also, one. also, yeah. Yeah. You understand? You guys are the most important thing in daddy's world. Like, everything else isn't even close. And they're like, 
Where's the Nintendo Switch? <laughs> I love that they come with you to everything. everything. It's become your family's lifestyle that you all just go together. I was raised the same way. My father, my enduring memories of going to like horrible smelling bars at 4 p.m. Now imagine what bars were like back in the day. The smoking like, the inside. Smoke oh and the my beer. God. And it was like, whoa, what is this in the puke? And I'd be there, you know, at 12 years old, watching dad get high and do sound check at the club he was playing at. And then he'd drive me home and get ready and get dressed and go back to the gig. That was my life with my father. So what I took from that was, because, you know, and I'm, uh, you know, I, Chloe had the baby, obviously, but we had our first child when I was 48. Um, you know, I had no parenting skills, so I had to kind of think it through, like, well, what kind of parent do I want to be? And I thought, that's the one thing my dad got right, was by including me, it made me appreciate the complexity of his world. And it, it allowed me to get to know his friends, his bandmates as people, not just like the guy in bass. Mm-hmm. Like, I got to know Louie on bass. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so I was invited into a very particular club. and And just like my son does now, like Augustus has personal relationships with everybody in the pumpkins. Oh, that's wonderful. He has no problem walking out my door and going to Katie Cole's dressing room and having a conversation with Katie Cole or Jack Bates. Um, he feels to- like to him, they're peers. They're not dad's band. Right. And we're this and you're that. It's Everybody's the same. So I think that's beautiful. That is beautiful. That's And I love... The relationship with you and Chloe as well. I feel like you guys have always supported each other's. Well, one, you have two beautiful children together, but you've always supported each other's passions. And she's at every show, and you have Madame Zuzu's together, and, and her fashion and company, her fashion company, which is called Maison Atia. And then, of course, you know, there's even the sacrifice of the NWA, where I have to my wrestling company, mm-hmm. where I have to go five days and right in the middle of America. Yes. And, and do something completely different away from the family. And now, because now they're a little older, now they come to wrestling shows too. So they know all the wrestlers. That's incredible. That and is us. Awesome. When you see your daughter talking to the 400 pound guy, <laughs> that's, that's wild. It's wild. Yeah, that is wild. But a friend of mine who, who wrestles and uh, is, is one of the most decorated uh, WWE female wrestlers, uh, Natty Neidhart, who wrestles as Natalia. Um, you know, she, her grandfather, Stu Hart, is one of the all-time legends of, of wrestling, Canadian. She she would literally go to dinner at grandpa and grandpa's house and have dinner with Andre the Giant. Oh, my God. Like, it wow. wasn't unusual to come over for Sunday dinner, and it would be Andre the Giant and the, the touring midget wrestlers mm-hmm. that were coming through town and, you know, some aging wrestler... You know, and they're talking about the old days and that. And and by the way, there was used to be a wrestling bear. Do you know about the wrestling no, bear? No, I don't. There was a guy who had a wrestling bear and the bear would travel around. And she said at one point the wrestling bear was in Canada working for her grandfather, the, the bear, obviously, but the guy, the trainer. And the bear was living under the porch. So they're pa- playing under the porch with the wrestling bear, bear. And then they go upstairs and have lunch with Andre the Giant. That okay, was that wins. Life. I feel like that wins. And, and, yeah. and she said, you know, when I was a kid, that, that was just the world Normal. I lived in. And now I look back and I'm like, oh my God, I was having... <laughs> Doesn't everyone have a bear under the porch? Or and yeah. Andre the Giant yeah. in the living room, you know? <laughs> That's so Yeah, real. it's cool, right? 
<laughs> that is amazing. That's amazing. Um, you and Chloe are engaged. Congratulations. I said no 400 times. <laughs> <laughs> so what changed? And is there a wedding plan? There is a wedding plan. It's not fair to call her Bridezilla, but she's in the neighborhood. Um, <laughs> goth, goth Bridezilla. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I think I just reached a point. It's, it's, it's the singular journey that I've been on, and you have a lovely partner as well. You kind of go on this journey, and it's you, like when you meet someone, you meet, let's call it the right person. That's not the end of the journey. That's the beginning of this mm -hmm. totally different journey. And what's always happened with us is somehow the way we are, and we're totally different people, we've just gotten closer and closer and closer. So this just seemed to be the next obvious thing in that journey. Not marry to seal the deal, but marry because it's it's the inevitability of the journey that we've been on, which is very slow, too slow for her. Mm -hmm. But for me, it, it was it was right. Now, to her credit, I did say in the beginning, and I was using it as a way to kind of blow her off, if we ever have two kids, no kids at the time, I'll marry you then. Got so it. then we had two kids and she was like, and I was like, eh, still not feeling it. <laughs> <laughs> so that went on for a good four years. And then um, uh, when it was her birthday, I was like, okay, today's the day. And then I spent the whole day like. You still I'm, weren't sure. I'm Pisces, you know, we got yes. to work both sides of the room. And, um, but it was weird because the, the minute I sort of said, okay, I'm ready. Like everything's gotten better. Oh, that's Everything, great. our life, our family life our children's happiness, not because it was about us. It's just something about commitment. Mm -hmm. And I think <laughs> promoting the band, uh, same thing with the band. I think what makes great music in a band is you have to have that level of commitment. And and that's go back to Autumn real quick. Yeah. I, I think where they were wise to not want to do Autumn at the beginning was we weren't- You weren't there yet. Used back together. Yeah. Where you can kind of, you know what I mean? 33 songs, a lot of music. Yes. And I've tested them plenty through the years. That's a lot to ask of guys in their 50s. Mm -hmm. Got a lot of other stuff to do. That's a lot of commitment. So at least I felt confident like, okay, we can hang. Because look, it's a beautiful day. People tend to like the record at the moment. What if this was a disaster? Right? What if this was a disaster and we're getting horrible reviews and everybody hates the record and they're all on me again? Okay, that band still has to be able to hang. And they've done it in the past and they'll do it again. But your band has always been sort of defined by risk. You have always That's taken- That's my fault, really. You've, been t you've always taken risks. Yes, not always wisely so. There's something pathological about it. The credit that the band deserves, and that includes the original four, three plus me, uh, is, is that they were always supportive of the risk no matter how insane it was. So I always got to give that credit. But the the- the problem of it all is always mine because I'm just like, down we go. I can't explain it. And I've, I've tried to think it through. I'm just, I'm not the guy who can just go back to Bowie. I'm just not that guy. You know mm -hmm. I, mean? I don't know. I just can't do it that way. Um, just not wired that way. Um, You've never repeated yourself. I have, but, it, but even when I've repeated myself, it, I'll put it this way. I'm going to say it like it's really lame because it's just an easy way to tell a story. You're sitting in a studio one day and you're like, they're all over me to make Siamese Dream 2.0. Mm -hmm. 
all right, I'm not feeling particularly strong today. I'm going to give it to him. Here you go. Here's another, you know, something. It just doesn't work. Even if you're like, take it all. Yeah. I'm ready to sell out. I'm tired. It just doesn't work. You're also not the same person. But think about it this way, a slightly different angle. The band that made Siamese Dream, we were totally like like this. Nirvana, Pearl Jam. They're on, you know, Eddie's and Kurt are on the cover of Time, MTV. Every time I turned around, Kurt and Courtney, my former girlfriend, it was like, (laughs) it was intense and it was an intense time. It's like making a diamond, the pressure, the moment, the, you know, that's why I love that song uh, by, um, I don't know the title. It's the famous Eminem song, Lose Yourself. Oh, you lose yourself. Is it eight? It's from Eight Mile. Mile. Is it Mm -hmm. called Lose Lose Yourself? Lose Yourself, yeah. I mean, what a perfect song about the hustle. Yes. And, And if you think about it, that song on some level, and- I don't want to put words in his mouth because he doesn't need me to do that. But my sense of it, it was he recognized the moment and he owned it. Mm-hmm. I'm here. It's my time. And that song makes me feel that way every time I hear it. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the game. So the guy that made that, like, under all that pressure and duress and the record label were breathing down my neck and Butch Vig trying to get another quadruple platinum album out of a bunch of Motley fools the guy sitting there 20 years later like yeah i guess i'll give you a siamese dream song isn't that you're not even in the same zip no. code you see what i'm saying yes i can do it and i like to taunt fans with the idea like i can make them siamese dream 2.0 i could really do it no problem i'm the guy who did it i have yeah. the blueprint up here i know exactly how i did it in fact i still have the same guitar pedals i can do it it, it, but that's not the spirit of it it's like saying yeah. it's like trying to have a, a love relationship but paint by numbers can you imagine having your relationship with your partner like, okay, on the, it says on the next page of the book, this is where we go on the rom-com date <laughs> and uh, we drink pink champagne and then- It's ridiculous. And then afterwards yeah. we, hold, we hold hands and we listen to a, a Lana Del Rey song and then you stare deeply in my eyes and I'll tell you how much I love you. Can we, can we do that? Are we on script? I feel like it it's just always a timing work. thing too. Like it just, there was like a, a certain moment in time that can't be recreated. I mean, what was it like? Well, you're getting more into quantum physics. Though, right. That's, that's a true. Quant- that's, to me, that's a quantum thing. It was like you're describing that time where you kind of felt that pressure. So what year are we talking now? This is like post-Gish? 92. Was, 92. 92 was probably the worst year of my life. Really? Because well, the pressure? I shouldn't say that because there's other years that are probably worse. But in terms of like the timeline that most people recognize, 92 was that worst year because I got a major label contract and suddenly I got to learn how to write pop songs for an emerging format and alternative radio and MTV wants to play the video. And you're like, wait, a year ago, I couldn't even get arrested. I'm making $12,000 a year to a record store. And now you want me to do all this stuff that I don't even know how to do. And oh, by the way, if I don't do it, you're going to cast me out of your little kingdom of funny mustaches and I got to go back to what being a nobody for the rest of my life and have to hear about how I blew it, man, this is, you know, and that was suicidal and the drugs and all of it. And the band was on its own version of off the rails. I mean, there was James and Darcy were having, they were a couple at the time and they were having their own issues and Jimmy was off the rails over here. I mean, it was crazy time. Butch Figs talked about it very publicly. The band broke up at one point during the making of the record, not broke up. Darcy tried to quit. It's actually Butch Vig who talked her back into the band during the making of the record. Butch was like the glue. 
Which was the adult. <laughs> which was the adult. <laughs> right. Um, which was the guy wearing the vest looking very professorial. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that, it's that Eminem song. Yeah. You got to go in and you got to go hard. So you cannot, you cannot live life right that way and you can't make rock and roll for sure that way. You were in an interesting position because when everyone thinks of that time, you know, you think Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, pretty much. All from all knowing each other, all friends in the same community and area. And you guys were such a, an important band for popularizing alternative rock in the mainstream. But you were almost on your own island because you were from Chicago. You weren't part of that whole grunge movement, but still equally important for alternative rock. What were your thoughts about Kurt Nirvana were you fa- were you friends with them? Were you fans of them? Were you hating on it? Like, how, what was yeah. your opinion of them at the time? I, I thought I thought Kurt was amazing. I mean, he was so talented. You were just like jealous of the talent. You're like, who gets that much talent in one wee body? <laughs> and um, I was talking to somebody today about seeing when they came through town on Bleach, Cabaret Metro, somewhere 1990, maybe it was 89 even. And um, what, 500 people in the crowd, mm-hmm. not even sold out. And the minute he opened his mouth, you're like, well, I can't sing like that. Jeez, that's that voice, which everybody knows. Incredible, just incredible. And you knew he could write songs. And he was, he seemed to be cluing into the vibe of the times, that kind of disassociative ADD onomatopoeia, even if you look mm-hmm. like the Teen Spirit lyrics, it's a bit ADD, Ritalin kids. Like he's a super smart guy. So he's dumbing it down kind of as a wink, but he's also targeting the thing he's after. Like he's making a statement. No, I I, I thought the band was fantastic. Obviously, Grohl, super talented. Chris Novoselic, I thought was a great bass player. I loved what he played. The problem was, and it wasn't a musical problem, because we played very differently and we were different bands. And we only did the one gig with Nirvana, Bullet La Volta, Smashing Pumpkins, Nirvana, somewhere in Boston, 91, 92. Not even sold out, 700 people, 800 people. There was a playoff game across the street, so everybody was at the playoff game. And, you know, there's some future rock stars on stage. And um, such different bands, you know I mean? Like after different things. I'm a little bit more meta. Kurt was a little bit more kind of in your grill about like what really matters, like life. Um, the problem was his wife or future wife was my ex-girlfriend. And that created a, an immediate riff. Mm-hmm. So add to that with the fact that he's smart enough to understand that my band is probably one of the only bands that has any chance of even challenging his kingship. Um, and that stuff does matter when you get down in the trenches of like who's playing who, who's playing where on the bill, and who's getting paid what. And um, you know, even if you look at Kurt's, uh, you know, last will and testament and the letter that he left, he talks about it's better to burn out and fade away. Mm-hmm. We were all very affected by what the business was doing to us. Um, I don't want to say that's why he took his own life, but he chose to talk about it in his last words on Earth. Um, it almost did my head in. So when you add the kind of the weird mixture of you're playing for different teams and oh, by the way, the one thing we do share is a point of contention. 
um, that was difficult to navigate. The nice thing, and I've, I've rarely talked about it, and I probably only talk about it with you, is towards the end of his life, obviously I had no idea he was going to go, we kind of made this weird piece where it seemed whatever that was seemed to go away, and it was it was a very uh, nice and friendly. It's not saying we sat there and talked about the moon and the stars, but it went from "I'm not sure I like you" and "I know you definitely don't like me" to like "How you doing? Is everything cool? Yeah, we're good." Talk about the baby, you know. It was, we reached that point where it was like a professional. It's cordial. Pers- yes, and you know. There were even times where she'd want me to call the house to talk to her about something. And of course, Kurt would pick up the phone and we'd have a couple minutes like, how you doing? You good? Yeah, it's all good. You know, like, I'm not saying we were BFF. I would never say that because I've seen plenty of other people do that that weren't BFF. And I know the inside story more than most people know. But we got to that point and um, and, and I've said it a few times. The day I, I, I think I was in, I know I was in like, like Baton Rouge, Louisiana or something. We were playing, we were playing some place that night and the phone rang at, you know, whenever it happened. And it was my manager at the time. And he said, Kurt's dead. And and I I wept, I I wept and I'm not a crier. I wept openly because you measure yourself against the best. That's what you should do. If you really, you really want to know life and you really want to, I played sports as a kid. It's like, Winning doesn't mean anything if you're not playing the best. I wanted to fight the best. I don't mean fight like this. Just like, you got a song, I got a song. You do that really well. Yeah, well, we do this other thing really well that you can't do. It's, 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 that's the positive side of competition. We're all competing for the same spot, number one, right? And um, don't forget, even on that, what was the bill that never happened? It was supposed to be for Lollapalooza. It was going to be Nirvana, Pumpkins, Beastie Boys. Ugh, wow. And they dropped out. So then we slotted down and became the headliner. But just look at that, Bill. Yeah. And look, it's easy to play, uh, you know, Monday morning quarterback. And it was the most successful Lollapalooza, at least the traveling version. Right. That year without them. So imagine what it would have been with them. And I would have welcomed the challenge every night to try to blow them off the stage. And I know he would have tried to blow me off the stage every night. And but we were friendly enough that it wouldn't have been dickish, right? But that's what you should do. So we had that, like, okay, <laughs> you're pretty good at what you do, and um, you know, and as you know, with the pumpkins, we're so asymmetrical that it's n- it's not like it's not we're not comparable in the sense of like he writes a really good teen anthem and I write a really good teen anthem because the pumpkins were just as likely to play like a 27 minute jam, <laughs> right? You right, know about right. the end of the world. Yeah. So we're coming at you from a lot of different different angles. angles. Yeah. But no, back to the original spirit of your question. Amazing, amazing band, amazing artist. And it's a shame we don't have 800 more songs from him yeah. because they all would have been good cuz he just he didn't write bad songs. And 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 by the way, he writes really great songs and then he's got that voice. Yes. And that, vision. and he was also gorgeous. Like it was just like a weird planets aligning. No, I used to say to Courtney, it's like he's the quarterback, right? Right. Like I remember being at my locker and watching the quarterback walk <laughs> by, and all the all the girls would look at the quarterback <laughs> as he walked by. That was Kurt. <laughs> and by the way, and I was in plenty of social situations, so even whether we were unfriendly and then became friendly, I watched it no matter where where I was on the arc, wherever he went. All the girls would go, 
<laughs> and the yeah. guys would like kind of like <laughs> they adjust themselves. No, like, they try to turn into Kurt somehow. Yeah. Like suddenly they started like standing like him and yeah. I don't know. And, and you know, he's one of one. There's no copying I, Kurt. Thank you for sharing all of that. Yeah. That is pretty yeah. powerful. Listen, I, I in, in, a, in a selfish way, I love extolling the virtue of great artists. We talked about David yes. and now we're talking about Kurt. I talk about Kurt for an hour. He was amazing. It was amazing. He changed the world. He made it possible so that we could sell a gazillion records mm -hmm. like they did. That's, it's, you can't, like, that's what I mean about respect. You have to give that respect. You have to say, that guy got it done. And there were plenty of bands before them that could have gotten it done. Jane's among them. Yes. And there were certainly signs of life. But he kicked that door open and it stayed open. It wasn't like the one year and then it closed. He changed it all. I mean, and it's still. Because, it's still. And you go to right there. And the only other moment you can point to is like Dylan, mm -hmm. as far as rock to me, Dylan in what, 63? Right. Where suddenly the Beatles tried to, suddenly now they're trying to write like Bob Dylan. And all, like, so Dylan around 63, 64, and Kurt in 90, 91. For me, that's the two defining moments of the music that I understand. Smells Like Teen Spirit well, was Elvis, the song sorry. for me. And can't, can't leave right. But to me, it's like, it's like saying, Oh, and there, there's the sun. Right. <laughs> exactly. Let's not forget about the yeah, sun. Yeah, I mean, that's literally. Without the right. sun, we'd all be dead. Right. That's so true. Elvis is the progenitor. So Elvis, Dylan, Kurt. Kurt, you're absolutely right. I have, I, 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 all my issues aside, all my ego aside, you got to call that. I wish you, I wish I would go, and then there's me. <laughs> but I don't put myself in that. You understand? Well, Kurt was sort of the gateway drug, um, and then I learned about everyone else. But but, but Nirvana was the was the uh, the eye opener for me when I fell in love with everything after that. Did you see shows in that time? I was too young. Oh, I know it's. You know, you're just 22, so it's uh, <laughs> exactly I'm really stretching there. <laughs> right, um, I was in utero. Sorry, I had to. I'll tell you a quick. Um, you want a, one more quick? Yeah, Nirvana I love thing? all of them. We were playing. Um, uh, in Japan, and I don't know if Hole was playing, but Nirvana was definitely on a tour. And so we did some thing, or we were doing something, and then we found out Nirvana was in town. You know, we knew we, were, we knew they were in Japan, but we we found out they were in the town that we were in. I think it was Tokyo. And if we wanted, excuse me, they were playing twenty four hundred small. And I mean, back then, it's a little different now. Japanese crowds completely quiet. You know, song finishes. It ain't like Nirvana in Seattle or something. Right. So we go to the show and um, this is a funny memory. Um, they started, I th my memory is they started playing the show with Teen Spirit, which at that point was a massive worldwide hit. But what Kurt did is he started playing Teen Spirit and he started singing More Than a Feeling by oh, Boston. Oh, by Boston. Yes. And then they kicked into Teen Spirit. But that's how they started the show. The show was great. And, um, but what was weird is at that point they were super massive and the, I mean, it's obvious, like it's, they're huge. Now they're huge. It's not like I'd seen them before when they were still on their way up. Now they're huge, but the audience hadn't caught up to it. So it was this contrast of a band that was bigger than the audience at the moment. And they didn't have the feedback loop of the audience. To, so they were, they played really well, but it was that sort of weird thing that can happen in Japan where the band was sort of a bit out of sync with the audience, but we were like, holy shit, they sound amazing. And they're obviously having a moment. 
And then we went back to say hi. And I was talking to Kurt, um, just talking about, a bit about the show. And because it's Japan, there's no security. And this guy just wanders backstage like an American serviceman or something. And he comes up and he's like, Kurt, <laughs> Kurt. And I just saw, and Kurt's eyes get really big and he looks at me like, save me. Yes, he was horrified. He's like, Kurt, I just got to tell you that teen spirit song. And Kurt's just like, oh, oh my God. And you're like, here we are. You're that guy. There's no security. The guys wandered back and it was all right there. And then when we went out, you know, you go outside and there's 400 fans standing outside. It ain't 40. You know right. I mean? <laughs> there it is. Even in Japan. It was a new where it's day. A bit, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know you're in a different ballpark when you see that. And they certainly were. And you could see them kind of like, whoa. Because that's what happens when you're in that spot. And we were in that spot eventually where you're just like, whoa, this is wild. Does it get to a point where you're like, I wanted this and now I'm not sure if I want this? Or if you're ever just... No. Scary. <laughs> I always want this. No, yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's the classic uh, Frankenstein or Promethean fire. You've created it. Now you've got to deal with the monster that you've created. Right. It's more about, it would be better if it was like this. Mm-hmm. I remember playing Lollapalooza in 94 and looking out at people that only a couple years ago were stopping their car as I stood for a bus and would call me every name in the book, which I can't repeat on the show because it would get both of us canceled. Mm-hmm. Right. I see. So now I'm looking at that same guy, literally, and he's like, "Right today," <laughs> and you're like, "This is wild." Yeah. How am I this guy's thing? Yeah. Because I'm the enemy, or at least in my mind, he's the enemy, and you know that thing that erases that, and you're like, "Okay, this is weird." And I remember going after Kim Gordon at the time, not my best friend in the world, because she was very critical of those people. Mm-hmm. And my thing was like, yeah, I get what you're doing, this kind of New York snob thing. Like, you know, it's no longer just the cool kids anymore. Even though that guy hated me or would hate me again or whatever, or would throw me in a ditch the minute I didn't write songs he liked. I don't like looking down your nose at people right. if, they're, if they're coming. And I've had my issues, but back to the respect thing, it's like... Rock and roll at its best. And that's why I think Elvis is probably the supreme artist of the 20th century is. His music invited everybody in and he didn't have a judgmental bone in his body. And if he did, we didn't hear about it. And people have written plenty of books. Right. He went way out of his way to make everybody feel that they were part of what he was doing. I think that to me is the true spirit of rock and roll. So when you get into the snobby stuff and I'm not a fan. I'm with you because if you think about rock and roll has always been a fusion of and a celebration of so many different subgenres and cultures. It's always been a, a mashup, an amalgamation. So to all of a sudden become a purist, it's almost like it doesn't make imagine sense. Imagine being um imagine being Chuck Berry in nineteen fifty-eight or um Howlin' Wolf. Um these great you know, African-American artists and watching white artists cop their trip, be more successful and have to navigate all that. Okay. That's to me, that's the real deal. Right. So if you want to sit there 40 years later and kind of pull down your, your, you know, your NYU glasses and, you know, I don't appreciate the proletariat coming to my noise rock show. 
it's just so ugh. no if 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 people if 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 the if the early geniuses of rock and roll and who like a James Brown if they were able to navigate not only the politic but the social politic and the racism and the bigotry and go on to not only create an audience that was inclusive of everybody but change the game by the very nature of their talent forever it's a weird kind of version of a flip to turn into yeah but i don't want you here right right that i've been able not to do if they now, can I've be quib- inclusive we should all be inclusive i've quibbled at times why they there they're there like mm-hmm. i like to dismissively refer to the siamese dream fans the siamese right. zombies right cuz it's like the undead Please play Rocket. (laughs) You know, it's like. Today. Yeah. And they talk to me like I didn't write those songs. You know, it's like, can you talk to the guy who wrote (laughs) Rocket? Because my life would be complete if you would play Soma. Right. You know, and then, you you know, cue the shot of the guy, you know, ripping flesh out. No, absolutely. You and I share a passion for like the respect of the past, present, and future and supporting artists whose voice comes from the heart, you know, an authentic voice. And I loved your potty, your podcast. Potty, uh, potty your potty, I love your potty cast. I love your podcast. Uh, Interesting Freudian slip there, <laughs> H. <laughs> Have you ever heard of reverse speech? You know about reverse speech? I like to reverse speech that. Like your voice in reverse be like, his podcast doesn't very good. <laughs> it's shit. Potty ca- potty cast. <laughs> I love your podcast, uh, 33 with William Patrick um, Corgan. And you had two guests on your show in particular, which have also been two guests on my show. And it's Youngblood and Willow, two very special, special young artists. And and you and I both obviously feel the same about them. Yeah. What what was it, what is it about those two artists that you wanted to make sure they were part of your show? Well, it starts from the fact that I think that knowing that there's some appreciation in my work, you at least start with a common understanding, right? And I'm not saying I had them on my show because they're fans. I'm saying is at least when I talk, they can understand where I'm coming from. Right. I'm not the guy talking and they're like, don't really know what you do, but I heard from my friend, you're good. Um, so you start there and that you have a sense of common dialogue. And um, my sense of them as artists, um, how can I put it? I feel like we're in the same lineage, hmm. right? Like, and I would put them in the same lineage as Elton John, you know, you know, or I don't know. There's so many that would easily, you know, uh, I, I, my 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 mind explodes with like so many different things because I th- like when I think of Youngblood, I think Elton John, mm-hmm. right? Because he's got one of those voices where it's like. Or Rod Stewart, where he, like, yeah, now he's doing whatever he's doing, post, post, pop, punk, you know, whatever. But 20 years from now, that guy could be, or 10 years from now, he could be right in Yellow Brick Road. Yeah. You know, his version. Um, with her, I think it's really interesting because, look, you start with the fact everybody knows the family name. Okay. Like, it's almost like, okay, let's set that aside because that's its own thing to navigate. I think what's interesting is, She's decided to voice who she is through the guitar, not exclusively, but that choice told me something about her, which is, yeah, I get it. You know who my parents are. Yeah, I get it. We're living in this different time and you're going to project whatever you want to project on me because who you think I am. But 
my weapon of choice is a guitar and I'm going to make a bunch of different statements, not because I want to make statements, because I want to express who I am. So I can kind of like, kind of push you back off the line to at least make you stop and think before you jump into all that other stuff, you're going to stop and think about, wait, this is, this is their own person, has their own things to say. Um, it's a really weird analogy leap, but I always like to say, Cher is one of the greatest actresses I've ever seen because I was watching a movie once with Cher and I forgot it was Cher. Great point. So I think with Willow, and I'm not saying she wakes up thinking this, this is my sense from the outside, is she's doing a good job of making you forget who her parents are. And that's no disrespect to her parents, both very accomplished. But if she's going to get her own thing across, she's got to kind of back you up off the line. And I think it's really cool, like I did, she's chosen the guitar as that weapon. Because it has a way of backing people off the line in a particular way. And the fact that she comes at it with a particular aggression, uh, a different generational set of ideas, where almost everybody else in that situation, uh, and of course she had her younger version of it, would be like, okay, right, here's the super pop producer. You know, it's all lined up and uh, here's the auto-tune. Okay, yeah. go. And all you got to do is do the rest and, you know, everything will line up. And she was like, nah, I don't want all that. Now that's she my sense of it. She stepped away from it, yeah. That's my sense of it, You're so right. I don't want to project on it because I think you have to be careful of that because you can tend to make a lot of assumptions about young artists. Um, young blood, I can already tell where he's going. And if I'm right, you'll be talking about him for the next 30, 40, 50 years. Yes. Like we are talking about yes. Rod Stewart or something. I feel the exact same way. With her, she's into a totally different trip because she's got the kind of mind where she might change the game completely. Mm -hmm. She's just starting with this. But by the time she's done, she might not just be a movie star and a rock star. She might have done something that we haven't even invented yet. That's the power. where yes. she's, And when she puts those pieces together, then the family then the assumptions, they become additive, not, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to, you know, it's like, how can I put this? I want to say this very sensibly because um, I want to respect the, the privacy part. When I was prepared to interview Willow, I knew exactly what I wanted to talk about and it was, it was only about music. And then somebody chimed in from her world and I understand why. And they were like, We'd appreciate it if you didn't talk about, let's just call it an X. And I was like, I know why you're asking. I'm not even there, but I understand why they have to do that because invariably somebody's going to sit there and say, it's really cool what you're doing. But by the way, let's talk about, that's why she's got to back people up. Yes. And, and, and we went through it in our own way. 92, you put out your stuff. So you guys are from Seattle, right? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you guys feel about Nirvana? Mm -hmm. Not now, 92. It's like, back up, motherfucker. We're the Smashing Pumpkins. We're from Chicago. We're going to do our own thing. So to have all that pressure and my friend Lisa Marie Presley, she went through it. Of course, Francis has gone through it. Cobain has gone through it. You know what I mean? Yes. I really get it. And I really respect her for that because that shows real heart and ambition. Those are two things that if you put those together, that one's unstoppable. 
It is unstoppable. And I'll never forget seeing the pumpkins and seeing her come on stage. I mean, I, and I, the first thing I noticed, and she and I talked about this when she was on the show, that there was no mic for her. I'm like, okay, so she's coming on as a guitarist. And that was so cool. We had a little bit of an exchange and she was kind of like, you know, kind of what you, what do you want me to do or something? And I said, you come on and play with the band. You're in the band for one song. And that's just the way we roll. Like, we're inviting you to join the Smashing Pumpkins for one song. Yeah. And she was like, oh, cool. She's awesome. As opposed to, you know, hey, everybody. <laughs> right, right. She's the real welcome. deal. Right. She's the real deal. And what was cool, and I've seen it happen a few times, uh, Chino Moreno it happened to. And it's happened to me like when I played with New Order and suddenly I'm playing with Joy Division. You can see the kind of recognition like, oh, it's a little different up here when you got Jimmy. Yes. And you feel that. And they kind of do this thing like, oh, fuck, this is interesting. The magnitude of it. Because on stage, we're a little bit more visceral. Yes. And you could see people kind of go, all right, interesting. So I was paying close attention because I was waiting for the kind of the recognition. And once she kind of relaxed, and leaned in, and she was like, I'm just up here to rock. Yeah. I'm not up here as Willow Smith. Yes. I'm up here to rock with this band. It was, and, she was so honored and oh, she please. worked, she really practiced. She was nervous. She's, <laughs> she did great. She's awesome. She did great. Cause put it this way uh, that space, the pumpkin space, we are not, uh, hey, are you okay? Mm-hmm. You know, what can we, you need a latte? Right. We're like, <laughs> there's your mark. You're kind of over here. I'm kind of over here. Go. There's no hand-holding in the pumpkins. Yeah. That's, if you think about it, it's our way of showing respect. Of course. You belong up here with us. You got this. Hit it. Yeah. A really cool conversation you had with Youngblood, which I thought was so interesting, was, you know, he was talking about, he has so many influences. You know, he loves... He loves the cure and he loves the sex pistols and he loves Green Day and he loves Gaga and you know he's got so many influences. And he has this ability on one album to sort of one song is one vibe, another song's a different genre. And you were saying how in the 90s, like you would not have been able to do that because it would have come across as inauthentic because you weren't oh, in yeah. one because of the purists of the 90s, you have to be one thing, and that's the only way to come across as authentic. Whereas he now has this freedom to sort of wear all of his influences on his sleeves. The way they did it in the 90s was irony. Like, now I'm doing my French trip. (laughs) Now I'm a DJ. (laughs) And I get it. It was kind of a cultural concern. The Beasties, in their own way, probably started it. Where it was like, why are you guys suddenly sound different? Well, we're just having a laugh. (laughs) But behind the scenes, people had obviously worked very hard to find variants in their game. Um, now he's, that kid's built for this world that's coming. Because if you can sing like he can sing, yeah, and you have access to what he has access to. Uh, and what I mean by that is resources. There's who wouldn't want to write with that kid? Uh, who wouldn't want to see where he's going? Um, you know, he's in that rare list of people like a Joe Cocker or Rod Stewart, or Elton John, where the singer is the song. I'm not that type of singer. I have to write a song for this voice. That kid can sing the phone book. 
So it'll be very interesting because guys like that or girls like that, they if they get it right, they they they, they ascend to this very rare place. Um, it's it's hard to explain because it's like I just see it differently. It's like, wow, who gave you all that? Like Kurt, right? Right. Kurt could have been that guy, but he wasn't. But you listen to that voice and you're like, I hear so much in this voice and he's singing, you know, take me out to the ball game yeah. or something, right? He's also such a visionary. So he's he's the real, he's the real true artist. He's pretty impressive. You know, as you know, sometimes you meet people while you're interviewing them. You know, he and I had never met. So there we are, press record, you're doing the podcast. And as the more I talked to him, I was like, oh, this kid can hang no like this kid could be in the pumpkins, like no problem. Yeah. Like he ain't afraid, he ain't touchy, he ain't like sensitive. He ain't, he doesn't need your validation every five seconds. This kid is like he's special. He's as we would say, he's a baller, right? He yeah, can, he can he can dunk, and uh, I have total faith in that kid. I mean, that, yeah, he is the real deal. He gives me hope. He makes me feel very optimistic uh, about the future. But we're in, we're in a good place. Music's in a good place. It's just, you know, rock and alternative is just underground. You know, it's just not, the 90s were unique. The counterculture was mainstream. Do you want, my theory? You want sure. my theory? Yes. My current working theory is that I think rock is at its best when it gets shoved out of the mainstream. Because, and there was... There's also, there was a, a similar complaint in country music when country crossed over in the 60s. What happens is, or, or here's one that everybody would remember, you had bands like Chicago and REO Speedwagon, MTV. They're rock bands. They're touring rock bands. All of a sudden, somebody has a hit with a ballad, and now everybody's got the DX7 out. <laughs> I mean, it felt like, and I love Chicago, by the way, being from Chicago, but Chicago had like 80 of those songs. Yes, they did. You're my inspiration. Mm -hmm. I love you. Hard habit to break. And I remember watching MTV about 87 wanting to commit suicide. Mm -hmm. I was like, I can't do this. Right. Like, what happened to, you know, Saturday in yeah. the park? I was like, where are we? Yeah. Um, so let's use, let's use my time. Suddenly you're on MTV and... Here come the third and fourth generation bands doing schmaltzy versions of Nirvana and they're getting plays and now somebody's doing the power ballad or hair metal and suddenly there's all this schlock. The public gets tired of it and rejects it. So rock at some point goes, oh, you don't want us? Okay, we're just going to go back and party over here. Yeah, exactly. I call it going to ground. Yeah. Right? You go back to ground and now, it's, now the music's back in the clubs. Yes. Here's how I know. I've been hearing about rock coming back for... 20 years. It's coming. Oh, check out this band. Just played in Mexico City in front of 30,000 people. All the young Mexican bands were big, loud guitar bands. And on the bill was Deaf Heaven and, yeah. you know, and Jane's, like mm -hmm. incredible, but Peter Hook. And then all the local Mexican bands were like, oh my God, like this is really credible, like not just sounds like. Yeah. Went to Australia, same exact thing. Amel and the Sniffers. You're like, oh, amazing. She's incredible. Amy, wow. Wow. Real rock star. Okay, so you're like, okay, here it comes. It's coming. Yes. Now it might be two years, four years, but now I see it. Now right. it's going to happen because rock goes away, figures out its new thing. Get away from us. Okay. I love the pop people. I don't need to name their names. 
We see them at the Grammys and the Emmys and the Oscars and at the Met Ball. And they're all wearing funny things. Great. Enjoy. But there's going to come a time where that won't work because here comes a Willow or a Youngblood or a Kurt Cobain. And not only are they going to shatter your game, you'll have no way to recover. And I hate to say it, good. Mm -hmm. Because I've met Janet Jackson a few times. The nicest person you'd ever want to meet. So beautiful, so kind. 1989 Billy in the apartment above the music box there in Chicago. I hated Janet Jackson because she represented everything I hated. Producers and perfect songs and perfect videos. And we're down here in the stinky club, you know, with the guy in the motorhead shirt. (laughs) And I got to figure this out. So by the time you get all that swirl of momentum coming out of Seattle, coming out of Minneapolis, coming out of Chicago, coming out of the UK with My Bloody Valentine and all that. Yes. By the time you get there, you're like, get out of my way. Right. (sighs) Yeah. And eventually, as has happened again and again and again, millions of kids go, I want the real thing. Mm -hmm. That authenticity, that raw. Can't fake it. No, you can't. They bleed it. It's them. There's no separation. No 18 producers is going to figure out that the out-of-tune guitar and the screeching vocal and the lyric about Mommy Take Me Home Mm -hmm. is the anthem. Yes. Not just another hit and a long line of hits about going to the club. Yeah. And that's the most beautiful, sacred moment in rock and roll is when some kid figures it out and goes, get the fuck out of my way. And that's how I felt. Those are our people. I just, luckily I had Kurt in front of me to like do the heavy lifting <laughs> first. Because <laughs> I don't know if I would have, I, 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 I didn't write that song, but I don't know if I could handle the pressure either. Right. I'll tell you a quick, quick thing that you yeah. may not know. Test your trivium. Back in the day, because I was around with Butch when this was all happening, back in the day, the Billboard album charts, number one wasn't who sold the most records that week. Did you know that? No. So when Nevermind was rolling, they were actually selling more records than other albums on the chart, and they weren't number one. They had some weird formula. It was record sales plus this plus that minus this and oh wow oh yeah it was I all I didn't realize that it was all as we say in wrestling it was all a work mm-hmm. so they had a way of controlling the charts I see so there were two or three weeks where Nirvana was the number one selling album never mind was the number one selling album in the U S and they weren't number one they didn't get the credit for it because they didn't want them to be number one interesting I did not know and then that. it became like. You weren't stopping this train. Right. And from that moment on, and we were with Butch that night having an Italian dinner that he paid for on his new major label money. <laughs> we were literally with Butch the night that Nevermind went to number one. And we literally, all four pumpkins Aww. toasted him and said, welcome to the big leagues, buddy. Oh, that's so special. Yeah. That's an incredible story. Mm. What about how a Siamese dream is 30? Well, I'm 32, so it's <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's quite an accomplishment. You, you know, you have young ones at home. It's yeah. quite an accomplishment. Think of your child, right? <laughs> Siamese dream it too. I mean, I'm. Now you that's said such it- a cheesy dad joke. <laughs> I, right? love, I just made like I'm all about the dad jokes. I'm with you. You've said in the past you would not do a Siamese dream tour, but then you also said now that you have children, you're more sentimental. So maybe you'd potentially consider it. I can't talk yet about it, but we're going to do something special for Siamese by the end of the year. Okay. We will mark the moment, yes. Siamese is a very important record. 
important records, and I say this humbly, they're, they're bigger than the band. Siamese Dream is a record that's bigger than the Smashing Pumpkins. It takes on its own. We're selling crazy amounts of t-shirts to teenagers with the cover. I bet. Why? You're wearing Iron Maiden, right? Yeah. I, I saw Iron Maiden. By the way, I saw Iron Maiden that week that album came out. Really? I think Bruce Dickinson's first show as the singer of Iron Maiden in, U- in the US. I'm pretty sure I was at that show. Wow. Can't be sure. I'd have to look at a calendar, but I'm pretty sure. So I'm listening to that album and I'm watching that band on stage in 82, 83. Okay. So it's hard to tell me as a fan that I wouldn't care about them going out and doing right. something to mark that album 40 years later. Siamese Dream is in a league of its own. The artwork alone, you know, I mean, it's a, everyone agrees it's a masterpiece start to finish. And even Pitchfork. <laughs> it's objectively a great album. And there are people who love Smashing Pumpkins and only know that album. Like that's the oh, yeah, album. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. the album. Oh no, I get the, I get the guy like, you know, after Siamese, I just can't follow what you're into, bro. Sorry. You know, and he shows me a Siamese tattoo. <laughs> that's why I call them Siamese zombies. <laughs> that album. Well, I'm excited to hear this because I was hoping you were going to say something about that. Um, all right, let's try to get to deep cuts, which is go. just lightning round. Here we go. I'll try to be lightning-esque. Name a song, album, or artist that changed your life. Black Sabbath. Which song is it? Well, um, Sweet Leaf. My uncle had a stereo, and my grandmother somehow let me play her son's stereo. And Master Reality was the first album in the stack. I put it on, and I heard Sweet Leaf, and I was like, and I've been chasing that sound ever since. And I was eight years old when I heard that. No joke. That's impressive. Ozzy's sound of his voice. Okay, you're talking about Siamese Dream. Okay, anybody know Siamese Dream? Ozzy's voice doubled. The guitars split into stereo, big guitars. I'm doing Black Sabbath. Mm-hmm. I'm doing my poor imitation of Black Sabbath. I've been chasing that sound ever since. I love that. That is the, that is the thing for me. Have you connected with Ozzy? I mean, I've had my, don't forget, Sharon even managed the band at one point. Oh, that's right. And, and, uh, and uh, quit on the band and, and, and said she was quitting because I was making her sick. Oh, we're friends again no. now. Uh, me and the Osbournes um, love Sharon, uh, and and of course I love Ozzy. I don't know Ozzy as well as I know Sharon. Um, and I know Tony better because I work with Tony mm-hmm. on his solo record. But uh, that's the best. That's awesome. What was your first concert? Uh, I saw Asia on the Heat is the Moment. Heat of the Moment. Yeah, I don't remember the name of it. Might have been the name of the album. But that was the name of the single. I think it was single. Heat of the Moment. That was a single. And it was sure. cool because they were doing that thing like um, they were doing some Yes. You know, Carl Palmer's in the band. So they did some Emerson Lake and Palmer stuff. They did some Yes stuff. And then, of course, they played uh, cuts from the Asia album. That was my very first. Oh, I actually have a good story. So uh, maybe seven years ago, we played the exact same venue I saw my first show in. Oh, wow. And I had one of the worst seats. It's an old uh, <laughs> opera house in Chicago. And it goes like, it's it's not a very deep theater. And then it goes steep up. So there's five uh, tiers. So imagine being five stories up, almost looking straight down oh my the stage. God. It's kind of almost- Uncomfortable. So I told the story on stage that I saw Asia in this very venue. I can't remember the date, 1982. And I said, I was sitting right there and I made the people uh, wave that were in my seats. And, and it I was said, Asia. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> Unfortunately, my life does not work as well right. as yours. But 
I pointed to them and I made them acknowledge me. So now they understand that I see them and they see me. You know. Yeah. And I said, and I already had somebody standing by and I said, there is somebody standing behind you ready to take you. I have two front row seats for you. And I brought them from the oh, top. Oh, that's the best. Because that's what I wanted somebody to do oh, for me. Oh, <laughs> that's paying a forward. That's really sweet. I like that story. What is a song you wish you wrote? Gosh, there's this teenage fan club song. I can't think of the title of. Um, God, I, there's a million. Yeah. Um, it's a hard one. I heard yesterday, I heard Dylan's Positively Four Street. You've got a lot of nerve. He just does, it's like the ultimate put down song, right? And I was like, oh my God, I, please. Yeah. I wish I, but not only do I wish I could write a song like, I, I, not only do I wish I could write this song, I wish I could write a song like that. Yeah. I do not have that skill set. Amazing. Well, most people do not. I mean, he's one of a kind. Yeah, but I'm, you know, I'm pretty good at my my gig. And when I can't do something, it's very frustrating to me. I think you're doing pretty well. You feel. Um, That's keep... the mom in you. I just felt so supported. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like like you just wrap me in like one of those snuggy, uh, you know, like the kid. It's you got to yeah. bind them. You just you just bound me in your oh. in your in your love. Thank you. I'm always here for you. Thank you. Do you have a favorite movie? Probably Satyricon by Fellini. I don't know if you know that movie. I don't know it. It's pretty decadent, but it's pretty amazing. Okay. I it's, have it, it, if you watch it from the prism of modernity, it's set, it's set in like ancient Rome, but it's very decadent. And then you look at it as a sort of parable to modernity and how people end up sort of... Um, because the you know the the actual text from Sherkan is one of the oldest written texts in the world, and they're not really sure even who wrote it. It's a farce, but Fellini turns into this like weird comment on modernity and kind of being gross. And I think probably it's even more poignant now today because everything's just so out of control, right? On social media. Ugh. All right, I have how, to watch that. How, how are you feeling as a parent looking forward into oh social my media? God. I'm waiting on that one. Yes, that's really upsetting me to even think about it. Ugh. Do you have a favorite meal or cuisine? No, I'm boring. You're plant-based, right? I am now. Yeah, yeah and I own a plant-based right. cafe called Madame Zuzu's. What's your favorite meal from Madame Zuzu's then? The meatball sub's pretty good. That's probably our biggest item. Chloe designed this incredible meatball sub. And, you know, it's one of those classic things where people come in that are not vegan and they order that and they're like, I can't believe this. Oh, that's thing. awesome. Yeah. I look it's forward amazing to job. that. Please. If you were not a musician, what would you be? History teacher. I used to say history teacher or psychologist, but I think psychology is kind of creeping me out as I get older. Mm -hmm. History teacher. I'd be the boring guy with the patches and, <laughs> and you know, the elbow you know I'd have the that thing. The you weird know? hairline. Yeah, the, the hairline, but I'd have the <laughs> ponytail. Do you have a most prized possession? No, but if there's a sort of rosebud in my life, it's probably the Gish guitar that came back after 27 oh, years. That's right. You were reunited. Yes, it was amazing. Uh, this gentleman out of uh, Nashville, somehow somebody contacted him and had some story about they found it. And the, it, was, I don't, it doesn't matter how it, it was stolen. And I think whoever had it knew it was stolen. And if, if they passed it off to somebody else and they pretended it wasn't stolen, doesn't matter. But the fact that it came back after 27 years is pretty remarkable. Oh, that's really special. Because I, I guess what I would say is like, it's the last, and, and the fact that it was stolen in 92, it's, it's like, a, I don't know, let's pretend this is the guitar, right? Yeah. Um, it's like you can literally hold an object in your hands and you can go, when this thing was with me, this happened. And when it left, 
got a lot crazier. It's yeah. like the last moment of innocence yes. or something. What is something your fans might be surprised to learn about you? See, that's a tough one because I think at this point, my fans, like to call them the ones that care about me on a daily basis, they're pretty aware how annoying I am, <laughs> um, but also what a nerd I am. Um, I think to the general fan, anybody that was watching you that doesn't really know a ton about me, um, I think they would be surprised to know that most of the book on me in the world is is based on characters that I played as I was doing what I was doing, and there's a lot of convoluted reasons why I did it. So to this day, people still think I'm the character that, it's like basically being judged for the character you played in the movie, and you're like, you know, I'm not that guy. Right. I really right. didn't kill, you know, Al Pacino at the end of the movie. <laughs> right. But they're convinced that I did. Um, so that's kind of a weird thing. But I yeah. think at this point, most of the fans, I call them hardcore fans, yeah. they, they're fully aware that that guy. Right. Are there words you live by? Hope is not a course of action. I think that's one of my favorite quotes. That's awesome. Hope yeah. is not a course of action. Um, fake it till you make it is another good one. Those are great. What do you hope your children learn from let you? Let there be rock. Uh, yes. Let there be. <laughs> Amen. Um, I get asked a lot, um, and you, you can understand why, you know, how would you feel if your kids go into the music business? And what I always say is, I just want my kids to be happy. Mm -hmm. Um I, I think I used to argue with my father because he used to say to me, it's good you got abused as a child because it made you a better rock star, which is a really messed up thing to say. Um, and I used to say, you know, daddy, if I wasn't beaten the way I was, maybe I would have been a great classical composer or maybe I would just been a history professor. No shame in that. Um, I chose rock for a particular set of reasons and I just happened to be good at it. Um, but with my children, um, God willing, um, I just want them to be happy. So, um, I think what I want them to take from me is that our father, speaking in the third person, I guess, our father, and you can imagine I'm 56 now, I have a seven and four-year-old, I have to often contemplate that probably at some point I'm going to go and I'm not going to be there for them, and they're going to have to navigate life without me. I want them to speak about me in a way that said, our father lived a particular way, and we understand why he did that, and we understand that. He was always trying to make it better, and he took what he made better, and he gave that to us so that we don't have to go through what he went through. That would make me happy. Oh, it's beautiful. I almost made myself cry. I know. I think I'm actually Here crying. on the Alley <laughs> show, <laughs> we talk about rock, and we get really sensitive. <laughs> You're killing me. Really, thank you. The fact that our conversation ended with us holding hands and in tears was just so meaningful to me. Wow. What a moment. It is now time for my sound advice. New music you need to know on the Allison Hagendorf Show playlist. Kicking it off this week with one of my favorite new songs from today's guest, Billy Corgan. This new pumpkin song hooks you immediately with Billy's metal guitar riff, complemented by Jimmy Chamberlain's powerful drumming all within the song's first 10 seconds. This has quickly become one of my favorite Smashing Pumpkins songs. Check out Empires. Next up is the first song from the new lineup of the band Fever 333. Frontman Jason Elon Butler is one of the best there is, and he is now joined by a new lineup featuring new drummer Thomas Pridgen from the Mars Volta and Thundercat, viral bass sensation April Kay, and guitarist Brandon Davis. Turn this one up for your workouts. This is Fever 333 with Swing. Also, my sound advice is the latest from Jasmine Bean. 
Based in London and known as a pioneer for their approach to makeup and aesthetics, Bean has said, I create music and film that pushes the boundaries of beauty and societal standards. I am loving their latest song, which is produced by John Feldman, a.k.a. Feldy, and Travis Barker. Check out Jasmine Bean's Piggy. That's my sound advice this week. You can hear all of these plus more on the Allison Hagendorf Show playlist. The link to that is in the show notes and at allisonhagendorf.com. As always, thank you so much for being part of the Allison Hagendorf Show. New episodes drop every Friday, so make sure you follow and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. You can find the show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also watch the show on Instagram and YouTube. I would love to hear from you, so please like, comment, rate, review, whatever you're feeling, and reach out to me on socials at Allie Hagendorf. I would love to connect with you. Let me know who I should interview next and what new music I should feature on my sound advice. Thanks again. I'll see you next week. And remember, you're a rock star.